0: Sunday, we were able to kind of dip our toes into the beginning parts of Matthew chapter 18. So we're going to just go back, start with verse 1, and then kind of work our way potentially through the whole chapter. But if you've been with me for any length of time, you know that's a lofty, a lofty goal. Verse 1 of Matthew 18, we read that at that time, and I think that's an important, uh, it's an important context at that time you got to place some of the things that are happening here at the end of Jesus' ministry, especially some of the exhortations. Jesus' time, please note with his disciples, his time on earth is rapidly shortening. In fact, there's a bit of debate from the scholars as to how much time Jesus has left with them. He is going to be going from the Galilee to Jerusalem. The events of the week of passion will unfold. Uh, someplace... Uh, Jesus' remaining time, as little as a month by this point. Regardless, scholars are unanimous in saying that the end is near. Things are progressing. Things are moving. Things will be reaching a crescendo, meaning that Jesus' time with his disciples. You know, Jesus knows the future. You know, he knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Not just his death, but he also knows of his resurrection. He knows of their betrayal and denial. He also knows of the the power of the resurrection, the impact this will have on their lives. He knows what will happen some 40 days later, Pentecost. So Jesus will take time here to provide some final instructions, some parting words, so to speak. Again, his time is limited. So at that time, with that context kind of established, you know, the disciples come to Jesus with a really important question. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? (laughs) Of all of the things that we need to be discussing, Jesus, what's most important here, who's the most important? Who's the most significant? So Jesus called a little child to himself, and he set the child in the midst of them, and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, who humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. The disciples come to Jesus with a question. Another passage gives us a little more context that they had been arguing amongst themselves as to who was the greatest. And when they talk about the kingdom and their mindset, they still had this idea, this concept, again rooted in Old Testament prophecy, that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, yes as Messiah, yes as King, yes as the Son of God as Peter declared, but he was coming to establish a physical kingdom in the present, in the here and now that Jesus would lead a revolution against the Roman occupiers. He would reestablish Israel as a land, Jerusalem as their capital. They have this mindset that they're going and they're going to take up arms. And Jesus will rid them of the Romans and restore their glory, the glory of the past. And in that idea, they're like, well, we're going, there's going to be a kingdom. And there'll be positions. I mean, Jesus won't be able to do it all. He's going to need us. He's going to depend on us. We'll have different ranks. We'll have responsibilities. So Jesus, who's the greatest? Who's going to be your right-hand man? Now, before Jesus answers their question in a roundabout way, he makes it clear to them a misconception that they were assuming they would all be in the kingdom. You see, they have a, a misunderstanding of what the kingdom was about, so he brings this child in front of them. And he says, guys, you guys are talking about the greatest in the kingdom. Let's talk first about how you get there. Like how you're going to be in the kingdom. It'll be like a little child. We talked about this last Sunday. The dependency of a little child. The innocence of a little child. The faith of a little child. The humility of a little child. Jesus says, if, if you're not converted and become. Again, it's not, it's not acting childlike or childish. But it's an attitude of the heart in regards to our heavenly father. This simplicity, this love, this affirmation, this dependency, this sweetness. And then he transitions. He's like, not only must you become like a little child to be in the kingdom at all, but it's like this little child, that's the greatest. Now, ultimately, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Well, he is. He's the greatest in the kingdom. Everybody else is a, is a very distant two. Jesus will be the greatest. And we will all be used according to the way that Jesus wants us To be used, but he's establishing here this picture of a little child being in the kingdom. And then he kind of pivots here, and this is for our subject matter this morning, talking now about the way that we treat little children, not in the context of actual little children. Understand, Jesus is making this comparison. He's talking about us, he's talking about believers, he's talking about those kingdom citizens. The citizens of the kingdom are like little children. And then in that context, he's talking about how we handle little children. Now, there is an overarching context that we're going to find within this chapter in general that's important. In fact, we're going to pause just for a moment. I want you to just look ahead at verse 17. We're going to look at this verse out of total context. But it's important for just the, the, the general idea of what's happening to help us understand what Jesus is articulating. He says in verse 17, and if he refuses to hear him, tell it to the church. Now, there's something Fascinating about this. Tell it to the church. Again, we'll get to what he's explaining, what he's talking about. But the context established here is significant. Jesus is talking to his disciples. The time is near, his time is short. He's articulating to them things that they need to know for the future, things that they'll need to know in his absence things that they'll need to know when they're now leading the charge. And he introduces again for the second time in Matthew the idea of the ecclesia, the church. Now, again, if you're working your timeline of you know Bible knowledge and how things are unfolding in the plans of God, when Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples, what doesn't exist yet? The church. There is no church. The church doesn't exist when Jesus is is articulating these things to the disciples, but Jesus knows the church will come, will be instituted on the day of Pentecost, when believers are filled with the Spirit. And then there is this gathering. And Jesus will have much to say. The apostle Paul will write, Peter will write about the church extensively throughout the rest of the New Testament. But this is now the second instance. The first instance, remember, in Peter's confession, Jesus makes the comment, I will build my church. Again, speaking of something future, something specific that he would create, that he would craft. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades won't prevail against it. And now second mention here of the church, Jesus is giving, like this is how you're supposed to deal with each other and treat one another. So he defines this all initially as little children, and now he's giving some instruction about how little children should be treated and how they shouldn't be, how they should and shouldn't. He says, Whoever, verse 5, receives one little child, like this in my name, receives me. We're to accept each other and love each other. We're brothers and sisters. But then he gives a warning that whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone, and that word millstone, it was the big one. There's a couple different varieties of millstones. If you don't know what a millstone is, it was a big stone that was used to grind up grain. It was also used to crush grapes and, and do other type of of processes, but and there were multiples. There was a hand kind of tool that was used, a small mil, millstone uh, that you might use in the kitchen. But this one, this was a big one, literally a donkey stone. This was pulled by a donkey. It was a gigantic millstone. He's like, whoever causes a little one, now he's speaking of us, his children, to sin. Anyone who believes in me to sin, it would be better for that person if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown in the depths of the sea. Very seeker-friendly, Jesus. <laughs> you know, real nice. No, I mean, Jesus is is, is is kind of laying down a gauntlet. He's articulating how how drastic he, he loves his children, he cherishes his children, he wants to protect his children to the point, like, it's not that this would be a horrible fate for you. What he's saying is that the fate for you will be so bad you would have rather this happened, is what he's saying. You know, there's several ways, you know, th- th- there's a lot of ways you can die. There- there's a few ways in particular you don't really want to. You know, fire's up there for me. You know, I don't, I don't want to burn to death. Um, I also don't want to get eaten. I don't know if, if you've ever had that thought. Like of all the ways to go out, being eaten, you know, a great white shark, a lion, a bear, uh, n- not a way I want to go. I don't want to die by fire. I don't want to get eaten by something. But I'll tell you right there up on the list, the kind of the Mount Rushmore's of the way Zach doesn't want to die is drowning. I don't want to drown. And not only that, if I were to drown, like do it like mafia style. Tell my, you know, put my feet in cement, you know? So at least I'm going down and I'm looking up, you know? This is, I'm going down and I'm looking down because it's tied around your neck. Like this is a bad way to go out. But he's like, you will prefer it if you had gone out like that than what I'm going to do. Now, who is he talking to? Who is he giving this warning to? Let me add a little bit more context. Verse 7, Jesus will pivot. He He says, woe to the world. So there's a distinction happening. Who is he talking to? He's speaking to his disciples. Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Little kid, come here. Says this little child. He's like, unless you're converted and you're like one of these little ones, you're not even going to be in the kingdom, let alone be the greatest. And if you want to be the greatest, it's, it's the humility of a little child. I asked this child to come, and he came. And I asked him to sit, and he sat. He didn't, he didn't ask me a bunch of questions. or He was just humble. And he listened, and he obeyed. There was no judgment or inhibition. It was the little child saw Jesus and responded to Jesus He's like, you want to be in the kingdom, you got to be like a little child. You want to be great, you got to be humble like this little child. But let me now, in context, talk about this little child. And who's he talking to? To the disciples. To the people that would be leading the church. You know, a lot of times when you study this particular passage and you get into this particular verse, it'll immediately pivot into the warning of culture. You know, and and in regards to leading kids astray in particular. And there's some application to that. I'm not not negating it. But within context, you know, there's an old saying that if you take the text out of context, you're only left with a con. That's why it's very important to always keep text and context so you're not conned. So here we find that the context is Jesus' exhortation to those that would be leading his little ones. I can't think of just the radical responsibility. You know, we'll, we'll be told in other passages of Scripture, you know, uh, the warning to those that would teach. The greater responsibility, the greater accountability, the greater, the way, the way that God, and, and the elders. And there's particular restrictions and qualifications for an elder. You know, what Jesus is saying here is that if you are in a position of representing me to my children, I really care what you do. And if you were to cause one of my little ones to sin, it would be better if you offed yourself. That's heavy. It, it's, it's heavy as a pastor. The responsibility of the weight of what my role is within our church. And for the rest of the elders, the same with them. The impact that, that a pastor falling into sin has on a congregation or an elder falling into sin has on a congregation. It's immense. You might even have your own stories of other churches where tragedy happened, and it set people in a spiral, people that still have not even come back to church, that have sadly equated those that represent Jesus as being Jesus, <laughs> when we all fallen short of the glory of God, and yet there's a responsibility here. As a pastor, this weighs heavily on me. I will also say, and this is to you fathers, the Bible describes you as the priest of your home. That you have a God-ordained place in your home. God has placed you there to represent him. Zach, how do I represent him? He shared his name with you. He's known and has revealed himself anthropomorphically as our heavenly, what? Not mother, but father. And then, and then in the, the scheme of it all, within the family structure, there is a father. I'm going to give you my name tag because you're going to represent me to your children. In fact, Jesus will, we're to love our wives how? As Christ loves the church. So you as a dad, as a husband, you represent something bigger than yourselves. When I read this passage, I'm struck by like the impact I make as a dad to my children, but the responsibility I carry as a husband to cause a little one, someone he loves and he cherishes, that he's determined to protect and giving you the responsibility for it, it's heavy. Again, I'm not trying to throw down a guilt trip on anyone. I'm just trying to, to, to raise your awareness as to the way that Jesus sees these things. And then he pivots, he says, but what are the world? So he, there's, a, there's a bit of a transition because of offenses, things literally in the Greek that would cause people to, to be scandalized or to trip up to be caught in a snare. He says offenses must come. There is an enemy that controls our world that doesn't have good intentions towards us. Jesus affirms this. Woe to the world because of offenses. Offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses come. And then he says if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. And again, this is within the context of of anyone within the world that would lay a scandal in front of one of his little ones or someone in leadership that would cause one of his little ones to enter sin. The warning is so it would be better if your hand or foot, if it causes you to sin, if it causes this to happen, cut it off, cast it from you. It's better that you enter into life, speaking of eternal life, lame or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you, it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. And it's interesting, Jesus is now, he's repeating an illustration he's used in another passage. Jesus does this. I kind of like this as a pastor. That if Jesus can repeat good illustrations, so can I. <laughs> you know? In fact, you'll find in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, that Jesus uses this exact same word picture discussing adultery, sexual sin. And and if you go back to our commentary on that particular use of the illustration, Jesus is being comical. He's being very silly here in his use of it. And the reason that we can kind kind of reach that conclusion that Jesus is not being literal is some of the actual facts, the realities presented within the illustration that we also know to be true. For example, uh, we have zero evidence anywhere in Scripture that you could actually enter into eternal life maimed. You know, so like, you know, even if you cut off a hand or cut off a foot, you don't want to cause someone to sin, you pluck out an eye. It's, it's not as though that you then enter eternal life maimed. Like, there's zero evidence of that whatsoever. And so that kind of challenges the, the literalness of the analogy because that's impossible. You know, you can't cut off a hand and then you're going to end up in heaven with one hand. Forever, well, it was worth the sacrifice. Not only that, but like, like, just let's be honest for a moment. Do such drastic measures actually uh, change the desire to sin? It really doesn't. Like, I can cut off one hand and still sin per- perfectly well with my left hand. In fact, I could cut off both hands and sin with my nubs. For about five, six months this year, I had no use of my arms or my legs, and I was still pretty good at sinning. You know, cut off a leg so you can't get to where you shouldn't go. I'll, I, I can hobble there with one leg. I could do a, a wicked flamingo. And if you cut off both, man, I'll get some wheels. Like, again, you could take pluck out an eye, I'll sin with the other one. Pluck out the other one, I still got my imagination. You know what I mean? Like, like again, there's a, a silliness because if if such action yielded the desired result, well, then we could take a literal interpretation of this, but it doesn't. Cut off one hand, off some of the other, cut off both. i got nubs. It reminds me of the scene. I made this illustration back in the Sermon on the Mount. That scene in Monty Python, you know, where you know the, the, he he encounters the knight you know and he gets one arm lopped off. I'll get you with the other one. He gets the other one lopped off. I'll still get I'll headbutt you. Cuts off a leg. You know, he finally has both legs cut off, both arms cut off. He's bleeding profusely. He's like, "We'll call it a draw." You know? It's just the heart of people. You see, physical remedies to an internal problem will never suffice. And we see this back with lust in the first use of this illustration. Here, so what is Jesus saying here? Repeating it. I do think that there is an angle of just, you know, this is the result of certain things, and you should be drastic in the way that you view them. But ultimately, I think we stand here and we think, well, man, I'm in trouble. Jesus views this, this is a big thing, this is the result. But I got a heart problem, what do I do? And again, if you ask that question, if you're like, you know, there's no 12 steps I can take to fix my problem. There's no outward uh, remedy for an internal condition. I can't fix my my internal issue from the outside in. When you begin to understand that, you you come to the place of grace. Well, I need, Jesus, I I take your warning seriously. (laughs) But Lord, you got to help me. And you got to change me. And you've got, you got to do things inside of me. You know, I, I love the fact that God introduces himself from the very beginning. Literally, the beginning. Genesis. As the God that speaks things into existence that weren't in existence. God said, let there be light. Why? Because it was darkness. And immediately upon God saying, let there be light, what happened? Light that didn't exist came into existence. Exhale all things out of nothing. And that's encouraging to me because when I see myself and I examine myself and I think, man, I'm, I'm, I'm missing something. And, man, I, I, I'm humble. I see there's consequences. I'm missing something. I don't want that. But I don't know, I don't know how I get this. It doesn't exist. It's not in me. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and his name was Jesus, and he can speak into you what doesn't exist. If, as a little child, you'll come up to your father and say, Dad, help me, change me, save me. Verse 10, Jesus says, Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels are always see the face of my father who is in heaven now that's an interesting verse fundamentally jesus is is articulating the gravity uh, the heavenly cost the weight saying that what you do to, to one of these little ones here on earth hey it'll it'll reverberate in heaven like that, like that's like your baseline interpretation of this verse can it be said could it be true that this is evidence of, um, that everyone has an, an, an angel, that an angel, a guardian angel? Could this be evidence of a guardian angel? Uh, m- maybe. Honestly, I, d- I don't know. It's one verse. I'm always hesitant to build like some great theology out of one verse. You know, you need a, a, a greater understanding. But could this be, or that there's one angel that that oversees a group of people, that there's Maybe. I don't know. I love the fact that we'll find out one day. How cool would that be if we do have a guardian angel? And we're told in, in Hebrews that beware of entertaining strangers. Why? Because you could be entertaining an angel without knowing it. That angelic beings, and we see this all throughout Scripture, we can build this theology, this doctrine, that, that angels have the ability, while they are spiritual beings, to take on a physical presence, even the presence of, of, a, of a human being. In fact, angels, we're given examples of eating, angels that eat and interact, angels that swing swords. (laughs) We have examples of of those type of angels, angels. Could it be that we'll get to heaven and it's like the guy in the cubicle that takes a lot of vacation time, you know, across the hall, that seems to always encourage you at the right moment? You're like, does that guy actually work here? You know, you get to heaven and there he is, he gives you a high five, he's like, yeah, I've been watching you you creeper, you know, like, could it be maybe? I don't know. You could study that more on your on your own. And yet, Jesus is saying, hey, what happens if you despise one, of the, there's reverberations in heaven. And then he says, and he begins to pivot, he says, verse 11, for the Son of Man, and he's speaking of himself, has come to save that which was lost. You know, if you're a a note taker, or if you like to highlight things in your Bible, or make you should highlight that verse. You know, Jesus here—he's—he's he's summarizing the totality of his ministry. He—he he doesn't say that this is one of the reasons that he came, um, or is part of the grand mission, um, or has a you know a subtext or subpurpose to the greater strategy. I mean he's very definitive in what he says. He says for the son of man has come. Why? That's well, simple. To save that which was lost. And who's he referring to? You and me. Anyone that's been lost in their sin and their trespasses, that have been alienated from God, that's lost in the world. Jesus came to save the lost. You know, the key to that, again, I'm going to probably share a little bit too much personally. I am terrible with directions. Terrible with directions. What complicates my inability to know north from south and east to west, I get lost in my own house. What com- complicates that, that characteristic of, about, about myself is that I also am determined to drive. So I, I, I demand to drive, and I'm bad at directions. Now my wife is just a saint because she's great with directions. She doesn't need GPS. You know, she knows her way around. I don't know where it comes from. I don't have that. Again, I get lost in my own neighborhood. It takes me like 10 times going someplace to actually be able to get myself back to that place. I'm bad with directions, and I want to drive. And here's the other problem. I'm really stubborn to admit I have no idea where I'm going. It's like kind of like the trifecta of just bad things. I want to drive. I have no idea where I'm going, and I don't like to admit it. And so we'll be going someplace, and I mean, I, I don't know how, you know, it's 10 turns later. My wife, who's known the whole time where we're going, is just silently like at some point he'll, he'll, he'll ask for help. And at some point, inevitably, I'll break down and I'll just say, honey, where are we going? I have no, I'm so lost. Will you take two more turns, two more rights, two rights, make a left, you'll be there. Perfect. I get stuck in a roundabout. I don't know which way to go. Jesus came to save that which was lost. You know, the only way that a person can be saved is to admit that they're lost. In fact, the only person that Jesus can't save is the person that refuses to admit they're lost. Jesus, I got it. Okay? I can't. Unless you're willing to admit I'm lost, you can't be found. You can't be saved. The only person that can be saved is the person that comes to the understanding I am lost, and I am ill-equipped to be found on myself, by myself. You can't save yourself. I'm lost, and I need someone else to save me. Jesus can do nothing for anyone unless you first reach that point. And what did he come to do? You know what's great about that? If Jesus came to save the lost, it's okay to admit you're lost. He's like, yeah, I know. I know, you know, it just, it just took a little while for you to admit it. But that's why I'm here. I came to save. And then Jesus gives us this great little picture of, just, of his heart for the lost. He says, what do you think? And he asks them a question. What do you guys think? He's speaking to the disciples. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine And go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You know, in Luke 15, again, another example of Jesus using illustrations for other purposes. He uses the same the same passage of scripture, and he does so. He uses this analogy of a shepherd leaving the ninety nine to go after the one that's lost, in regards to the unbeliever, and just what our heart should be for the world. But in this context, that's not it's not a repeating of the same story because the context is not the loss. He's talking about his little ones, isn't he? That's the whole context. His little ones and what our heart should be as a reflection of the shepherd who came to save the lost. What should we do? When one of the little ones within our fold. These are Christians that get wayward, that go astray, that get lost. As a church, we should have a heart and a determination to go after and to rejoice over, over, over that one, bring being brought, being found, being saved, and being reconciled. You know, there's this Sunday school picture. I don't know, maybe you've seen it. I think it it's probably would be a uh, your standard, typical felt board character, for those of you that are older than 35. Felt boards. But, you know, you, you've seen it, the picture of the shepherd. And the shepherd has the, the little lamb on his shoulders, you know. He's gone out. He's left the 99. Again, the idea is not that he left the 99 unprotected or, or insecure. Like, they're secure. They're in the fold. They're where they're supposed to be. But he's going out for the one because he loves that one. He doesn't want to see any, the will of the fathers, that none should perish, that, that all should be brought back in. And he goes out. And you get the mental picture of him of him going through the storm and the rain, and there's the lightning, and you've got the little lamb that's there. It's falling off the side of the cliff. It's hanging on for dear life. And the shepherd comes and he grabs him and he puts him up on his shoulders, you know, because you're not going to lead the little one, you know, and and he takes him back. It's such a pretty picture, you know, the shepherd with the little lamb and and the idea of Jesus going after us. And he does. But you know the one thing about that picture they don't tell you about? The little lamb that's on the shoulders of the shepherd. You know why he's on the shoulders of the shepherd? Because the shepherd, upon finding the wayward sheep, broke its legs. broke its legs and so the shepherd is carrying the little sheep because it can't walk it's like well your walk got wayward so he breaks its legs puts it on. i'm going to carry you you're not going to die i'm going to carry you and it's in carrying you as you mend as you heal as you're close to me in the process of it you'll never go wayward again you will long for my presence you'll be at my hip you know that's what happens with us doesn't it When we go wayward, when our walk takes us off the path. And Jesus, maybe through a friend, maybe through an intermediary, he's not going to just sit by idly and allow it to happen. He's willing to leave the 99 to go after the one, and he's going to rescue you. But there's a process of brokenness that's necessary in restoration and coming back. You know... Jesus is carrying this analogy, I think, in an interesting way. Steve and I had lunch uh, this past week, and we were talking about it. You know, Jesus here is—he's kind of reiterating a picture. So, so he's called us little ones, and now he's kind of carrying the idea of little ones into the the the, the that we're sheep. We're sheep, and and it's true, man. Sheep are cute, and they're cuddly, and they're woolly, and they're, you know, they're sheep. But, but please understand, calling someone a sheep, even in that context, not a compliment. You're a, you're a sheep. You know, everything in the animal kingdom, interesting, everything in the animal kingdom, God did this weird thing. You know, m- humans are a little different, creating the image and likeness of God a little different, but everything else, everything else in the world is in this constant balance of eating other animals and trying to not be eaten. Like everything, the food chain. Everything is running around this world trying to eat something else and not be eaten. That's the existence. And God, in establishing the way that this works, is really brilliant. Because, okay, this is how it's gonna function, but you know, I'm not gonna leave you out there on your own. And he gives all the different animals some type of unique ability to ward off being eaten. You got an armadillo. Not very fast. But, I mean, a predator comes after an armadillo. It's got this hard shell. It wraps itself into a ball. Can't get in. It's an armadillo, but it protects itself. God gave the armadillo a way to protect itself from being eaten. To survive. A cheetah. Run faster than anything else, you know. It's got speed. Porcupine. Not real equipped. You don't see many ninja porcupines. But you try to eat one, you're going to get stuck. A skunk. I mean, the ingenious way that God equipped all different animals. You know that animal? I mean, black and white, it looks pretty scrumptious. I'm going to let it defend itself by squirting out just a stinky fluid. I mean, God. All the different animals and different ways that God made all these different animals to ward off being eaten, except for one animal. Like really the only animal of the animal kingdom that is the most defenseless, stupid animal is a sheep. What does it do? It doesn't squirt anything out of its rear. It's not prickly. In fact, God even made the land where you look at it and you're like, that looks like a lamb chop. Like, it looks like I'm going I'm to eat it and wear it. Like, really, apart from a shepherd, sheep should be gone long ago. Sheep had no chance in this world. But they survived. Why? Because they have a shepherd and each other. The shepherd. It's the, we're sheep. But we have a shepherd. And we have a shepherd who defends us and fights against us, and fights for us, sometimes fights against us, but who loves us and cherishes us. And even when we go wayward, he doesn't write us off. He goes after us. Continuing. Moreover, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Jesus here is is getting into some very practical things regarding the way that brothers and sisters within the church are to treat each other, how we're to handle conflict. And you know why Jesus, even before the church has been instituted, that decides, you know, I should take a moment, talk about conflict resolution. You know why? Because Jesus knew there would be a lot of conflict that would need resolution. Hey, I'm going to put together a whole group of people, and they ain't going to get along all the time. So right from the beginning here, I just need to give you some basics on how to deal with each other. And he says here, very practically, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained a brother. So what? And it's practicality. Is he saying? He's saying. And please note, if your brother sins against you. You know, when you're looking at this, when your brother sins, it's not when your brother annoys you. Go and confront him. Or when your brother does something you don't like. Go and confront him. No, no. We're talking about something very intentional, something direct. When he has sinned against you, when he's harmed you, when he's done something wrong. Now, there is an an unspoken alternative to the first step here. You should note, and that is grace. It's been said that mercy that is measured is not divine. Hey, at some point, you're going to be sinned against by someone else in this church actually sinned against, not annoyed, not peeved, but actually wronged. And in that moment, you have to make a decision. What am I going to do about it? Am I going to run away? That That's not an option. Am I going to go gossip to others about it? No. Am I going to run to the church? No, not first. The first question is, like, can I get over this? Like, can I let it go? Can I give some grace and mercy into the situation hey you know what that person said something really dumb to me and it hurt it actually hurt me you know the the old saying sticks and stones may break your bones but words will never it's a moron sometimes i'd rather you punch me in the face than cut me with your words i can fix my face it's already messed up but to cut me with i mean someone says something stupid to you and it hurts but then you got to take a step back you're like you know, I, I know they're going through a tough time. And I know they got other things going on. And I, you know what? I, you know, I don't think they really meant it. And you know, in this situation, I'm, I'm hurt. But Lord, you, you, you take my hurt. You take my, you know, this is not worth it. I, you know, I'm going to grant some grace and mercy here. That's option one, by the way. This is just grant grace. But let's say you can't get over it. And it's bothering you, it's hurting you, and it's hurting when you come to church. You're harboring it, and it's it's weighing on you. Step one, Jesus, these are Jesus' words. Clear instruction is day, right? You, the person that's been harmed, go to the person that harmed the offending party and confront them. And no, Jesus doesn't say if that person accepts what you said. Jesus just says if they hear you. It's not even that they confess it. It's as simple as if that person is willing to sit down and be like, you know, I'm not sure if I agree with you or not, but I hear you. And that's something I'm gonna take to the Lord, I'm gonna pray about. Then you're you're done, you've gained a brother. Okay, Jesus says, as long as you hear me, I got, I got it off my chest. And doesn't, isn't there something healing about getting it out there instead of just carrying it, instead of just being in the heart? it it's just been verbalized out of your mouth. You know, you just got it out there. You hurt me. You said this. You take that for what it is. I'm going to let it go. gotta heard you, brother. You've, you've gained something. Jesus said that's step one. But, verse 16, if this person doesn't hear, so they won't hear you. They refuse to meet with you. Well, take with you one or two more. Again, the context, brothers or sisters. That, and then Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 19.15, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now, now the goal here, please understand, is not to go get two, get one or two other people to gang up on the individual. The idea here is, is to have an, an an arbitrator, a mediator. There's always two stories to every conflict. Please know that. Just because you get one side doesn't mean that that's the whole story. So someone comes, you know, listen, Pastor Zach, this is what's going on. I went to him, just like Jesus said. He wouldn't even meet with me. What happened? This, This is what happened. Well, I'll go with you. I'll go with you, I'll sit down with you. I'm not on your side. I'm just going to mediate. That the conversation can happen. This is not you and me versus them. This is just one or two people that are just there to make the conversation happen. By the way, if, if this is applicable and the right way to handle human conflict within the church culture, how much more relevant and appropriate this would be in the world as well. Just to say, if, you're, if you work a secular job, you've got, you've got conflict. You're trying to figure out conflict resolution and other dynamics. The travel ball team, or you fill in the blank. Good step. Sorry, Greg, wasn't pointing out. Travel ball coach. I'm just saying, like, conflict resolution, this is a good way to do it. Go. They won't hear you. Take someone and mediate. Now, this is when it does get uh, more applicable to the church. And Jesus says, if he refuses to hear both of them. So he's not willing to meet. Tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, when it says to the church, I'm not, I'm not of the opinion. I, I think that there are appropriate times in which this should take place. I don't think that this should be the dynamic where it's, it's like happening from the pulpit or it's a very public, super public affair. I think the first step to this is you go to the church in regards to the leadership of the church. You got one, you got two. We've, we've we're not even able to have this conversation. This is just festering. And we've tried to go, they're not hearing us. They're not willing to meet. We've had things like this happen within our fellowship. And so, okay, as the elders, then we'll reach out. Hey, we want Again, this is not the elders picking a side. This is just again using the church's authority and influence to intercede, to say this needs this conversation needs to happen. And if at that point, there is no, rec- there, I say reconciliation, the conversation never occurs. The person is still unwilling to even talk. Then the church has a responsibility, and we find other examples of this within, uh, particularly 1 Corinthians, where it then becomes the church's job to say, okay, we've gone to what Jesus says, so now we're at the end of what Jesus said, you're gone. When Jesus says, treat them like a, a heathen, uh, the, the word heathen, Uh, It it literally means like an outsider, an other, a tax collector, probably better a publican in the sense that that they were tax collectors viewed as being traitorous. Not excommunicate in a permanent sense, but like, hey, there's a separation that needs to occur. You're unwilling to do what Jesus said here. We're not picking sides. There's truth to both stories, but you're not... You're not even willing to have the conversation. And now there's this conflict that's happening within the body of Christ. And Jesus says this is how we're supposed to do it. And you're not willing to do it. So guess what? You need to find some pu- place y- you need to go. Now, within this context of the first century, it was a lot easier because there was like one church to the town. So like, you were not allowed in the body anymore. Today, you know, people just, well, I'm up south. I'll just go to another church. I will tell you this. If we ever find out that you are running from a problem like that, I will call that pastor. And say, hey, has there been any, like, what, what steps have you guys taken? I would want that pastor to do the same to me. Again, we are the big C, the church. There's a way to handle this. Sometimes people can just escape, go someplace else, have no accountability. And what God is trying to articulate here never occurs. Practical. I will say, so often churches run into major schisms. Major problems, division, disunity, because we don't follow Jesus' instruction. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come up to me and say, Zach, so-and-so did this to me. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want to hear anything about it. Have you gone and talked to them? Do they even know they did this? Whoa. Jesus says this is how we're supposed to handle this, you're coming to me, is not, not, not part of it. You need to go first. Well, I don't want to. Well, okay. You and Jesus deal with that. Are you, then are you cool to just forgive? No, I'm going to hold it against him. Well, you've got a problem. So you need to go do what Jesus says. I mean, I think he knows what he's talking about. He's God. So often we, we, we end up, the church ends up skipping steps. And it causes major problems. And so Calvary 316, we as a group of elders, we, we're continuously coming back to this type of a passage. It's like, okay, when something's brought well, have you gone to them? I did. They didn't hear me. They wouldn't even meet. Well, did you take somebody else? No, I didn't do that. I didn't want to be a gossip. Well, no, Jesus says to do it. So just do what he said. Again, Jesus lays this out, finishing out this section, verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, and and the word you in the Greek, it's plural. He says, whatever you, plural, bind on earth, and he's speaking to his disciples, will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus has said the same thing to Peter after Peter's great confession. Said to Peter in a singular sense, now it's repeated in the plural. Which means that that was not a unique thing that Peter could only do, but it's now being Extended out to the other disciples, loosing and binding. Again, I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Again, Jesus, two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst. The idea of in the midst is I was already in the midst. I'm already there. Like, it's not as though that two people have to show up to church for Jesus to show up. Like, if I just show up like, well, Jesus isn't going to be here today. This is in the context of, of, of what? Of church discipline, about handling things, conflict resolution, and the way that Jesus is articulating dealing with it. He says, if you do if you do this, what you bind on earth or the decisions you make, they have already, it's it, the tense is, it's already been bound in heaven. I told you to do it this way. I got your back. And whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. Jesus is like, it's if you handle this the way I'm telling you to, I've got your back on it. That there's an authority being extended. For where the two or three are gathered, I'm already there. Again, not just that you know, Jesus shows up to church where two or three are gathered, but in the in the context of, of dealing with heavy things, of dealing with discipline. Very practical. And then, and then Jesus will transition here. It's funny, verse 21, then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. It's so funny, Peter. We'll get to this next week. But it's like, Peter still, um, he still hasn't, like, he still hasn't gotten over verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Peter's stuck there. Peter's heard nothing else. He's still trying to get over that idea. Wait a second. You're talking about forgiveness? So how often am I supposed to be doing that, Peter? You know, you want me to do what? How often? How frequently? What's the parameters? And then Jesus is going to give this parable of the unforgiving servant that is very, um, very, very radical, um, to say the least. So we'll get to that next Sunday. But i just close. Two different, two different illustrations of Jesus describing us. little ones and sheep again it's not that he's disparaging us he came to save that which was lost and he views us as his kids he cherishes us and he protects us and he feeds us and he loves on us yeah we're dumb as sheep but we are loved by our shepherd amen so father lord we thank you for